Well, we have come to our last message in the book of Nehemiah, looking today at chapter 13. And this is actually Nehemiah's second term as governor. And uh, we're going to begin this morning in verse 1 and go right through the book and make some uh, expository points that I believe will be applicable to all of our lives. So beginning in one, verse 1 this morning, on that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. We have to remember here God's unconditional promise to Abraham concerning his people. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Here we have an example of two people groups in particular that sought to curse Israel. They were threatened by Israel, as we've already seen in the book of Nehemiah. The separation of the Ammonite and Moabite people were based or was based on their failure to bless Israel. It says it, to assist Israel. And also the fact that they hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 23. This occurred when Israel was camped on the east side of the Jordan, outside the promised land, across from Jericho. You might remember what happened. These people felt threatened by the Israelites. So Balak, the king of Moab, sent for the prophet Balaam to come and curse Israel. Well, Balaam headed off to Moab without following the Lord's instruction. So the Lord, the angel of the Lord, stood in the way, causing Balaam's donkey to turn aside. This happened three separate times. And three different times, Balaam struck his donkey. Eventually, his own donkey rebuked Balaam. And God instructed Balaam, allowing him to continue on his journey to go see Balak, but that he would bless Israel, not curse them. So when Balaam met up with Balak, Balak asked him to curse Israel three different times. And each time, God told Balaam, or had, as he had already instructed him, to bless Israel. During that second blessing, God said through this, or God said this through Balaam. This comes from Numbers chapter 23, 19 and 20. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. So Balaam was following the Lord's instructions. He was speaking for the Lord. He was blessing Israel. And that goes back to the promise of Genesis chapter 12. We might also remember the analogy of the fig tree in Romans chapter 11. It certainly reminds me of this. 
The Apostle Paul refers to Israel as the natural branches of the fig tree, Romans 11, and shows how God has broken off many of the natural branches because of their unbelief and grafted in wild branches, the Gentiles, by his grace, fulfilling another part of that Genesis 12 prophecy that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. During this church age, the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile. But there's coming a day in which those natural branches will be grafted into the tree of blessing. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 11. Referring to the nation of Israel, Paul writes, Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, for the sake of the Gentiles. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Did you get that? For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Folks, God always keeps his word. While we are children of Abraham through faith in Christ, it appears from Romans 11, I think it's unavoidable that God has a plan to graft the nation of Israel back into that tree of blessing. Well, as we continue in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4 through 9, now prior to this, Elijah, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, remember him? Verse 5, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they had put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, prescribed for the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Elijah had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order and they cleansed the rooms and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. We know from later on in the chapter, verse 28, that Elisha's grandson was married to the daughter of Sanballat, the Horonite. Tobiah was an associate of Sanballat. Verse 4, it says, being related to Tobiah, speaking of Elisha. The word related there is karab, or it means basically near. So it's not necessarily a family relation, although it can be, but it can actually refer to an alliance as well. Regardless, there's some kind of relationship here, some kind of an alliance, because Elijah, the high priest, emptied a storeroom 
a large one at that, and stored supplies for Tobiah in a room that was meant for the supplies for the Levites, for ministry. Tobiah was an Ammonite from the region today that has its capital, Ammon, Jordan. Tobiah had fought against and threatened Nehemiah and the Jews, trying to prevent them from rebuilding the walls. We remember that from previous chapters. Tobiah was no friend of Israel. We also see from chapter 13, it was during this time that Nehemiah had been summoned back to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. It seems at least that Elisha took that opportunity while Nehemiah was away to do his own thing, to serve his own interest, putting the interest of his own allies ahead of God's chosen people. However, when Nehemiah returned, he took care of business. He threw Tobiah's goods out of the storehouse. He cleansed the room and returned the supplies for the Levites to their proper place. And there's certainly a lesson here for us. We've all seen this kind of thing happen in churches. When a member of the church is influenced by a relative, a close friend, or an associate, putting that relationship ahead of the interests of God's people. You know, I understand. It is easy for us sometimes to justify siding with others, even to the neglect of the body of Christ. Sometimes we can even justify doing things that harm the body of Christ, siding with the world or even with wayward believers. But we have to understand how God views the church. We are the apple of God's eye. New Testament metaphors describe the church this way. We are the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God, the household or the temple of God. Since these are metaphors that God uses to describe his church, maybe we should begin to understand the importance of the church to God. He is our head. He is our groom. He is our father. He's our God that lives in our midst, who indwells us. Does not God care for his own body? Does he not love his own bride? Is he not a loving father? Does he not uphold the temple that proclaims his glory? May we never align ourselves with the world or people of this world or with disgruntled believers at the expense of the church because we might just find ourselves aligned against God. And that would be a sad thing. Nehemiah 13, verse 10. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their post. 
all Judea, or Judah, excuse me, then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, Padiah, the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Metaniah, for they were considered reliable. And it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, he says, oh my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. Nehemiah here, as it's obvious, was taking a stand. He did not allow politics, relationships, or alliance to get in the way of doing what was right. He restored the Levites and the singers to their place of service. He restored the tithes and various provisions that should be for them. He used reliable leaders to make these restorations. Those who serve in the ministry are to be cared for by those whom they serve. This is not just a principle we find in Nehemiah. It's found throughout the word of God. We find it in relation to the church as well. 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14, Paul writes, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who regularly attend to the altar have their share from the altar? So also, verse 14, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. That principle has not changed. Certainly pastors, people in ministry should be willing to minister for no pay, as the apostle Paul did at times. But the biblical principle is this, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. And anyone who works against the appropriate pay of those in ministry when the church is able is working against God's command. Notice Nehemiah prayed in verse 14, remember me for this, oh my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. He was trusting in the faithfulness of God to reward those who serve him. This wasn't a selfish prayer by Nehemiah. He was actually praying for God's will. This is the will of God. God does reward those who diligently seek him and those who serve him. Nehemiah 13, 15. As we continue... In, the, in those days, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on that day they sold food. Also men of Tyre, were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise 
and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought us, brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gate so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also, remember me, O oh my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. You see, Nehemiah knew the consequences of breaking the Sabbath. It was because these people, the Jews, broke the yearly Sabbath, that letting the land rest every seven years. That was a lar large part of why God took them into captivity into Babylon. The reason they were deported. You see, obeying the Sabbath was an important part of the Old, Te Old Testament or Old Covenant. It was so important that Nehemiah had the gate shut preventing any kind of selling on the Sabbath. Why? Why was this so important? Well, besides the example of creation week with God resting on the seventh day and the outright disobedience of the old covenant command, I mean, God had made it clear throughout history, throughout time, that they were not to work on the Sabbath. I think we also have to consider the coming rest that the old covenant Sabbath foreshadowed. Remember Hebrews 4, where the professing Hebrews were told to be diligent to enter into the new covenant Sabbath rest? You see, the old covenant Sabbath foreshadowed the rest that we have in Christ. Resting in Jesus Christ is our Sabbath. That is how Christians participate in the Sabbath. We rest in him. We rest in him every day of the week. So when the Jews worked on the Sabbath, not only were they failing to obey God's commandment, they were failing to picture the ultimate rest found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we do not partially depend on the work of Christ and add our own works to it. No. We are to rest completely in Christ alone. Remember the scriptures teach 
consistently and faithfully that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2? Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. We're not saved by faith plus works, adding them together. That's Catholic theology. And sadly, the theology of some in the Protestant church. We're saved through faith alone. It's true. Salvation or saving faith always produces good works. But good works is not even a part of the root of salvation. Good works is the fruit of salvation. So I admonish you today, rest in Christ. Rest in his finished work on Calvary's cross. That is our Sabbath. We rest from all of our works, realizing that our works are nothing but filthy rags before him. We rest in the work of Christ and what he has done in his finished work, being indwelt by the Spirit. And when we rest in him, when we trust in him, it always produces good works. We continue in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck them, pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him to sin. Do we then then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Elishib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purify them from everything foreign and appoint duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me. Oh, my God, for good. 
The children of Israel were called to be a separate people. They were called to be holy, to be set apart. And a part of this involved being forbidden to marry foreigners. God had warned the children of Israel before they entered the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 7 not to intermarry with foreigners. Nehemiah points out the example of Solomon, a man that loved God, a man that built the first temple, but he sinned by taking foreign women. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, uh, Edomite, Sidonite, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. While the issue here is based on a clear command by God for Israel not to marry foreigners. He says this, it's also to prevent them from having their hearts turned away from God. And I think that's the issue here. Regardless of these people, what we think about them, the associations they had, the evil amongst them, God was protecting his people. He was preventing his people from being influenced for evil that their hearts not be turned away from God, from Yahweh. But I cannot deal with this without pointing out something that I think is significant here. Although it's not the reason given in the text, it could be an underlying issue here. It's issue that there's an issue here that all three of these groups were associated with what the Bible calls the Raphaim. These were giants that lived there. We remember Goliath. So is it also an issue of genetics here? I don't know. It's not mentioned as in Nehemiah as the basis for the separation. God was preventing them from having their hearts turned away from God. But because the Bible tells us that giants lived in the city of Ashdod and among the Ammonites and Moabites, I want to point out this interesting coincidence. Now, if you find yourself disagreeing with me, that's fine. Many scholars do. It all stems from our interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. As far as its interpretation, though, many believe that the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim in Genesis 6, refer to fallen angels. And I've studied all the arguments both ways. This, however, was the view of tra the translators of the Septuagint, the historian Josephus, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Ambrose, Julian, Actually, it was the view of the early Christians, and we find this in many historical documents. More recently, such scholars such as A.C. Gabelon, Donald Barnhouse, Frank 
uh, Delish, Henry Morris, Merle F. Unger, and A.W. Pink, and many others held this view. Also, ministries today like Creation Ministries International, Answers in Genesis, hold this very same view. So don't think it too strange what I'm sharing with you. Bear with me because we're getting somewhere with this. And that's in part why I want to bring this out. Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab were each known for their association with giants, as I've already said. We find giants mentioned in several places in Scripture, in particular the book of Deuteronomy or Numbers and some degree Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua. Ashdod, one of the Philistine cities, excuse me, is referred to as the place the Anakim lived. The word Anakim was the word for the long-necked giants that existed among the Philistines. Remember Goliath? Remember Og with six fingers on each hand and six toes? An Egyptian text refers to Ashdod as the city of giants. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 28, refers to them as bigger and taller than the Israelites. Also, when Moses sent spies to spy out the land of Canaan, they came back and said this, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now, while the Report was considered false because they exaggerated the situation and they failed to believe God, that God was the one that would conquer the land of promise for them. Joshua never corrects their claim that these were indeed giants. Both Ammon and Moab were said to possess the Eman. That's the word for terrors. The Ammonites in scripture call them the Zemzuman, that means the plotting giants, and the Moabites call them the Raphaim, simply the Hebrew word for giants. So where did these giants originate from? If this is true, where do they come from? And it all goes back again to Genesis chapter 6, where the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim, procreated with the daughters of Adam, Benot Ha-Adam, producing the Nephilim. The word means tyrants. They were known as tyrants, but also giants. The sons of God in the Bible are always direct creations of God. The angels were direct creations of God. And certainly Adam and Eve were directly created by God. But it's never used to refer to man except in the New Testament, the Greek equivalent of Beneha Elohim, because we are born from above. We are recreated in Christ Jesus. So we, as born-again Christians, are direct creations of God. Descendants of Adam were never referred to as Beneha Elohim, the sons of God. We must also note that each of these groups identified as giants in the Old Testament were seen as the enemies of Israel. They were they sought to destroy Israel, to lead Israel astray. They hated God, and so they hated God's people. We have to understand that Satan has fought God's plan to redeem man 
from the very moment that he promised it. Since God promised to crush the head of Satan through the seed of the woman, beginning with the murder of Abel, the seed of the woman, the incident in Genesis 6, however you interpret it, the plot of Haman to have all the Jews killed in Persia, the decision here of the Jews marrying foreign women, and the plot of the king of Herod to kill the Messiah by killing all the male children, young children. You see, God's promises are sure. They never fail. God promised from the fall, from the, ma- the moment that man fell, to send a Messiah that would deliver man from sin. No prince or power of the air, no evil person on earth could ever stop what God promised. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen, our let it be so, to the glory of God through us, through many types foreshadowings, pictures, and prophecies, God promised a seed that would crush the head of Satan. God promised to bless all the families of the earth through him. God promised that the Messiah would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He promised that his death would be a substitutionary sacrifice for his people that his sacrifice would permanently and actually cover man's sins, wiping them away, that his sacrifice would satisfy God's anger against us, that his sacrifice would bring complete and perfect forgiveness. God promised that Christ would be our scapegoat, taking our sins away, away from the presence of God, God promised that the Messiah's body would not see corruption, guaranteeing his resurrection and the resurrection of every believer unto life. God promised that the Messiah would bring a new covenant where God's people would no longer be under the covenant law, that he would write his laws upon our hearts and our minds, turning our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, making us the temple of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming I will be their God and they shall be my people. Speaking of relationship, as we said a week or two ago, God has turned enmity into intimacy. He has a relationship through Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection with his people. He has redeemed a people for his namesake. If you're not a new creation in Christ Jesus, Jesus died for our sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and was resurrected on the third day. We are to repent, turn from our sins in faith, trust in Jesus Christ to save us, to make us new creations, trust in him to forgive us our sins and to empower us to live for Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other hope. There is no other way. There's no other truth. There's no other life. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby you must be saved. Folks, there's not another option. 
There's nothing to think about here. There's nothing to debate. This is not my opinion. It only has authority because it comes from the word of God. This is the command. Believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and you will be saved. And I challenge you today to look to him in your sin, in your sorrow and guilt of your sin. Look to Christ for he is faithful to save. Now, let me close the book of Nehemiah by reminding you that Nehemiah is not a book about a man named Nehemiah. Not so much so. Nehemiah, the book, is a book about a faithful God named Yahweh, the true and living creator God, the God that has called out a people for his namesake, a God that always keeps his promises, that provided protection for his holy city, and for his people. And he used his own people to rebuild the wall. The God that caused people like Nehemiah to serve him. It's about that God that's faithful to keep his promises and to use his people for his own glory. It's about the God that can take an ordinary man like Nehemiah and put him in a place of privilege and send him back to Judah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and do so with the king's blessing and the king's resources. That's the God that Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah proclaims, the God that demands holiness, but is also merciful. The God who works through man's failures and inability to live righteous lives and points us to our need for his righteousness and his righteous one the Lord Jesus Christ. So Nehemiah is not so much a book about a man named Nehemiah. It's a book about Yahweh and his faithfulness to redeem a people for his namesake and to care for those people. It's about the only true God who promised to send his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save his people from their sins. Are you trusting him today? Have you come to grips with your own sinfulness and depravity and in faith called upon him for forgiveness? If not, I plead with you today. Believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for your word in general. God, you have spoken and your children have heard your voice. God, thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself in this book, a holy and righteous and merciful and faithful God. Thank you for these people that trusted you like Nehemiah. Thank you for their testimonies because they reveal for us your power to redeem a people for your own namesake. And God, thank you that you have called us, that you have reached down 
into this world in the person of Jesus Christ and in the new covenant, God, you have redeemed a people for your namesake, writing your laws on our hearts, giving us new hearts, making us your children. Lord, we can't even comprehend the gravity of all that means only by your spirit. So open our eyes. May we not miss it. May we not understand the God. May we not fail to understand the God that we serve, the God that saved our souls. May we live for you. May we serve one another. May we look out for one another for the interest of your people. May we do so for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.